Welcome to Sunrise Life, the podcast where we have deep conversations with fellow freelance models. Today, I have Starla on the line. Say hello. Hi, guys. So Starla is your model alias, but then your name on Instagram is Model Adventurer. Tell me more about that. So I just straight up was really bad with branding myself name wise. And you know, you actually talked about this on a previous podcast, how it's the first thing you tell new models to do properly. I didn't get that advice. I didn't have cool people like you helping me out. So I started as Starla because my modeling career kind of came out of my emo phase of MySpace. And so that was my alias for that. And essentially, my selfies turned into professional photos and professional portfolios. And then I never properly rebranded. But at some point, I really hated Star. I was originally Starla Lost. And then I lost the Lost, which was a big joke. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then I, I really wanted to kind of manifest a rebranding, which is where Model Adventurer came from, because I wanted to focus more on what I wanted out of my modeling career, which was attracting adventure. But then I still wanted the safety of a fake name for Google searches. So then I kept Starla. And then now it's been like 12 years. And I, <laughs> I hate the name even more. So I've been telling people in the industry that my name is Sierra, which is my real name, because I've realized that people from work were crossing into friend zones genuinely. And it was weird for me to have my friends call me a fake name. It was hard for me to upkeep that. So now I'm just keeping it a bit more simple and uh, just keeping an eye on my Google search to keep things clean. I really love that you described all of that because it is also a journey that I've had to deal with. When I first started modeling, I didn't even think of a nickname. I was just going by Christy. Mm -hmm. And then early in my career, I was nicknamed Rebel by some promo team that I did like rock and roll go-go dancing for. And I was signing up for my nude Model Mayhem page because when I first started modeling, I was doing nudes, but I was trying to hide it. So I had two Model Mayhems. I had a nude one and a not nude one. And Rebel was already taken. So I was like, oh, I need an adjective. So I was pure rebel for like 15 years and it got old a few years ago. And I was like, you know, I think this is kind of silly. And like, it's obviously not my real name. When people see the nickname, they're like, oh, that's a silly nickname. (laughs) I liked it. I thought it was catchy because I I was introduced to you when I came across your page when you were pure rebel model. But it's (laughs) it's one thing to know other people by other names. It's another one to live by that name. Yeah, and I don't mind like it as a nickname, but it as my main name is I don't know, it's just not me. Also like in the last uh, you know, 5 or 6 years with politics in the United States and stuff, the nickname Rebel is sometimes associated with like negative connotations, and I don't want to align with that. Even though that's not the reason why I was nicknamed that. I was just being rebellious, you know, in general. So. Were you accidentally starting like unwanted political conversations just with your name? <laughs> um, I had some really weird interactions that were unexpected from people. I'm from the Pacific Northwest and the ideologies of the Southeast and the Northwest, uh, it's just a different vibe. And I didn't, I had no idea that I had no idea and I wasn't very like politically educated when I was, you know, for most of my life until the recent like five or six years. 
I had an experience where I went to Nashville, Tennessee, and an African-American photographer had hired me. And I met him and we started shooting and talking. And about halfway through the shoot, it was going really well. And he was like, you know, I was so scared to hire you. And I was like, really? Why? And he was like, are you kidding? I thought you were going to be a racist bitch. (gasps) Oh, no. And I was like, (laughs) what? Why would you think that? Did I say something that I didn't mean to say? He's like, because of your name, duh. And I was like, what? And that's when it dawned on me that rebel could be associated with like the Confederacy and stuff. Right. And I, it sounds obvious to me now, especially with all the politics that have been happening in the last several years, but it kind of put a bad taste in my mouth for the nickname at that time. And I struggled with it for, for years after that, I had to keep on posting on YouTube. Like this is the real reason of my nickname. This is how it started. It's not what some people think it is. Okay, yeah. Oof. I didn't even think of it in that way. And now you're happy with your rebranding? Uh, yeah, I'm just going by my real first name. And then I use my real middle name as my last name. So it's just as not very anonymous as it can get. <laughs> <laughs> there is a nice thing about that. Like I do absolutely same thing. Encourage aliases, mostly like safety, but also you know, one day we might need a normal job where they Google search things and uh, to have a clean Google search. But it's also kind of really nice now that I'm using my real name and I'm not having to manage who calls me what and what name I use in which context, which, you know, maybe I'm making it a big deal, but it was feeling complicated to me. (laughs) I totally understand that. Also, I had that feeling as well, like, oh, what if it's going to ruin my future that a ton of news are on the internet of me with my name attached to them. And over time, after revealing my nude modeling to my parents and like everybody in my whole life knows what I do, I just thought, you know, if there's a potential employer that I'm probably not interested in working with anyway, that is going to be shaming me about my content on the internet, I don't want to work with that company anyway. You know what? That's really true. I had this experience over COVID where I was actually working in a medical field and I was really nervous that people would find out about my online and my my career outside of COVID kind of thing. And you know, they eventually did and they didn't care, which was the coolest reaction that could have possibly happened because they weren't like starstruck and being like, oh my goodness, you travel the world, like, because that would have been weird for me, you travel the world naked. But then it also wasn't the (laughs) disgust that I was expecting of, oh my God, you travel the world naked. They literally didn't care. They found out and they they just asked, is this true? And I was like, yes. And then everyone stopped talking about it. It was old news immediately. Cool. It was really cool (laughs) that way. Yeah. The taboo isn't so insane anymore. Now that OnlyFans is basically mainstream, it's like, oh, you do art nude modeling? Well, that's nearly as crazy as other shit I saw on the internet. I was actually talking with someone, this is somewhat related, that, you know, there is some psychologists that sat around and they were trying to test how to catch people lying. And so they were trying to come up with questions that people would be afraid to answer, honestly. And that's how they would determine if people were lying without a lie detector. So it was questions like, they're all inappropriate, of course, but it was like, have you ever secretly enjoyed a bowel movement? Which most people would honestly have said yes, but most people publicly would say no, especially to a stranger. But one of the questions they used was, have you ever enjoyed yourself watching porn? And when that study was taking place, which was like the early 2000s, which isn't that long ago, 
everyone would would have lied and said, no, what, porn? That's not me. <laughs> but now you can ask that question and everyone would be like, well, yeah, duh, don't, what's wrong with you? You haven't? And it's really interesting to notice that, that shift in culture. Yeah, that is true. I, it is kind of shifting more somewhat towards a more sex positive world. I mean, obviously there's backward yeah. steps happening also. But you're right, more people are willing to say, I watch porn. Like, who cares? Like, everybody right? does, right? And as nude models, we get to jump on um, that, that safety train. <laughs> I'd like to hear the history of how you started getting into modeling and then how it's led you to where you are now. So as I kind of mentioned before, I was doing the, the whole emo phase thing and taking a lot of selfies. But I've always been good at social media. I mean, as soon as I had a computer, I was jumping on social websites and I just figured out the algorithms and how to get popular on them. It was just really addicting to me. So when I was doing the selfie thing, I was really quite popular on that, but with really bad quality photos. So I had a few things happen that were good luck. One being I was at a party and there was this drunk girl who was crying. I had this fuzzy hat. I just put it on her and made her feel better. <laughs> totally forgot about it. Got drunk, did my own thing. But the next morning, she had actually found out who I was and messaged me on Facebook to say, hey, you left your hat with me. I think you might want it. By the way, if you come by and pick it up, my roommate's a photographer and he's seen your stuff online and he'd really like to shoot you. And so we did that. And with the photographer and I just really ended up vibing Patrick McKierkin. He was learning photography and I that was like pretty much my first shoot. And so we just ended up working together almost every day that summer, just creating. And it was really, really fun that way. Then the second thing that happened is at the time I had a face and body painting company and I didn't know anything about the modeling industry. So I was just doing my selfies with face paint and body paint and putting them on banners for my advertisement. And so one of them was a zombie. And I had posted that on Tumblr and online and all of that stuff. And about six weeks later, Walking Dead comes out for the first time. And the internet didn't really have zombie photos before that. So that photo went viral, which put a lot more traction on my page. And then all of a sudden, I put professional photos on. And people just thought I was a lot more experienced than I actually was. And I did not correct them. <laughs> and I faked it till I made it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so cool. It's great that you just happened to have that photo at the right time for the Walking Dead to come out. Yeah, yeah, because no one knew anything about that show or how big it would be. But a phrase I really like using in this industry is dumb luck and smart choices. Because it's there is a lot of dumb luck that you just get to have these opportunities that many other people don't have. But you also have to be smart enough to see it as that and to ride that wave too. Man, I wish I had that like muscle in my mind a little bit stronger. <laughs> Seeing the opportunities or the dumb luck? I guess I suppose dumb luck isn't something that I could sharpen, but like recognizing that there's a good opportunity to maximize on XYZ thing. Okay, okay. I'm really surprised that you've said that, actually, because I think you're really good at that. And especially creating your own opportunities with tools that you already have, 
I, I, from, from an outsider looking in, you seem to really excel specifically in that. Oh, well, thanks. I suppose it's one of those things where if I'm in it, I always feel like there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> yes, I think that's what it is, too. <laughs> <laughs> so you started modeling, you had Tumblr, you were using social media, you had that experience with that photographer of your friend where you went to had a good experience with that photographer Patrick mm -hmm. and you were doing body paint and taking selfies of yourself with a body paint and then from there w w at what point did you sign up for Model Mayhem was, was that kind of like a stepping point for you yeah so the other thing that happened just before meeting that photographer and again related to the face paint is a, a model this girl who I went to school with had started modeling and she did the whole, hey, can you come paint my face? I can't pay you, but I can pay you an exposure. And I just, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you know, at the beginning, that's really exciting. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. You know, I thought she was really pretty. She was going by Lex Vandela at the time. And she had a few steps above me. So we did a shoot together and it was really lovely. But she was already on Model Mayhem and told me about it. So then I went on and then essentially just researched the crap of what she was doing online, which was at that point working with as many quality TF photographers as you could. So then I really mashed that button and I was just asking everyone to work with me. I really was psyched about the whole experience and I did that for free for like a year before I saw my first payment. And uh, it, same kind of thing as I didn't expect it. And then I'm like, wait, this could be a job. And then I started trying to refocus it into that. That's really awesome. And if I recall, because for our listeners who don't know, we have met in person. You are quite tall. You are tall enough to be an agency fashion model. Have you done any of that? Sure. So yeah, I'm six foot one. If the agencies ask, I'm 5'13". But <laughs> so the, wait, what? 513 instead of 61. So actually, a lot of agencies, unless you're in the very, very high end ones, cut you off at about six foot for two reasons. One, you have to be shorter than the male models. And two, sample sizes, especially sleeves, start to get too short on you. So you need to be in that, that happy medium between 5'9 and 6 foot. Unless you're mm. doing top of the top and that's have it being a size zero and six foot two. I Oh my god. Right? I have never been a size zero. I'm right in the middle, so I'm a size six to eight, depending on the clothing line, which makes me too thin to be plus size, but too thick to be agency standard. And when I was starting, I actually had agencies approaching me from both ends, first off, asking me to gain weight to be on the plus size division, and then also asking me to lose weight to be in the thinner. And I couldn't do either. Like, I really tried both. And your body just has a genetic weight it gravitates towards, and I couldn't get mine to go too far in either direction. So I've been into some non-exclusive agencies that were quite cool. You know, I, I was also in a crappy one that just got gigs off of Craigslist. <laughs> but there were some good ones that sent me on some runway. Because of my size, I did really well in wedding runway because wedding dresses are actually made for like real, more realistic and more of a variety of body types. I've had this topic come up a few times in the podcast with agency height models where they're the in-between size. They're not skinny enough to be mainstream but they're not heavy enough to be plus size why is there not 
a category for like the in-between sizes. Yes. I had this really uncomfortable situation where a plus-sized company approached me to, to do their catalog. And of course, I wanted the gig. I really liked their stuff. That was really cool. But then I also noticed I was the thinnest model they'd worked with. And so I had kind of like a guilt towards that. And I, I cornered her and was like, hey, like, is it okay that I'm here? Like, of course, I want the job, but I don't want to send the wrong message that now size six is plus size kind of thing. And she said, actually, my target audience is the in-between size but that doesn't do well with marketing. So that's why I'm I'm hoping to have just like one model like you so I can go towards whom I'm targeting. But marketing wise, you kind of have to pick one or the other to jump on bandwagons. Huh, that's so weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's just a part of the industry I'm never going to fully understand (laughs) because of that. Yeah, I mean, there's so much weird stuff with sizes and measurements. That's one thing I really appreciate from both the freelance world and the nude world is it has nothing to do with with measurements or heights or anything like that. It's just how you present yourself and your business skills, your modeling skills, which I think are much more important than the the genetics that you're luckily or unluckily get. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And that's why I always leaned towards being freelance. When it comes to freelance modeling, what is your favorite genre or style to, to do? Right now, because it it shifts. So consistently, I've always loved duo and group shoots. I really like, you know, especially with nude work, it's a lot of body language work. I sometimes treat it like a meditation so that my poses change towards my mood. That's cool. But when you put in a second model or a third model, then it's almost like an unspoken conversation happening, which I really enjoy. I remember doing a shoot with a friend right after I got into a huge fight with an ex-boyfriend and like I hadn't even brushed my hair like I just looked like a mess but I showed up five minutes before and I was able to put in like one sentence and she saw it she knew I had a bad night and the entire shoot she just like kept hugging me like a mother and it was so first off the photos turned out wicked But two, it pulled out poses that neither of us had really done and put in an emotion that I don't think I will ever be able to recreate either. So I really love group or duo shoots for that dynamic. But the new one that I'm super interested in is I really love underwater work. That's a whole new challenge that I really want to hack. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so... You also invited me for that that underwater thing, which I thought was the coolest thing. Also, I'm still actually calling down the images because we took so many and I suck so hard at that. <laughs> but that was really fun to work with you and Astrid because you guys have so much experience underwater. I was really intimidated because my breath hold is not like where your guys breath hold is. But one of you said something that was really nice that has stuck with me where it's like, it doesn't really matter how long your breath hold is. It only matters that it's longer than the photographers. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, people think that you have to be able to hold your breath for a really long time. I think as long as it's more than 15 seconds, you're fine. Like, it doesn't take that long to get a good photo. Yeah, but with that being said, you guys did have a long breath hold. Like, where would you say yours is at now? I haven't been practicing lately because I've been in the desert. Oh, that's fair. <laughs> And my breath hold on the couch when I'm practicing at home is a lot different than when I'm 
swimming in cold water. Absolutely. So on the couch, my record that I haven't reached in a long time, but my record after practicing for several months every morning on the couch and like breathing up and all that was three minutes and 20 seconds. Wow. So that's a lot. But I mean, that's not realistic for when you're actually at a shoot, especially when it's really cold. It takes your breath hold away because your body's trying to warm up and is using the oxygen to like shiver and stuff. And when you're swimming, especially like moving your body around, it takes more oxygen. So, and then I think psychologically also, depending on how calm you are, the calmer you're able to be, the more you'll be able to hold your breath. But I would say that on average at shoots in the water, like I don't try to like beat my underwater posing record every time I go underwater because if I do that then I'm not going to be able to have that long of a shoot because I'm going to be stressing my body out to try and recover every time I get back to the surface so I would say that you know between 30 to 60 seconds underwater for me depending on how deep I'm going and whether I have to dog paddle a bunch in between posing that's kind of I would say my average for when I'm at a shoot and if if they need me to do some kind of like how long can you hold your breath thing, which the only kind of people that ever do that are like fetish people, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's still not going to be as long as when I'm practicing by myself on the couch at home. Yeah, that makes total sense. Have you ever gotten past, like, you know, there's a point where your diaphragm flutters? Yeah. Have you ever gone past that point with a breath hold? I can get past at least one of them for a while, you know, where like, yeah, your diaphragm kind of like convulses a little bit and you're like, okay, like just got to tell yourself I'm not going to die if I wait another 30 seconds. So I've, I've been able to go, I don't know, 20 or 30 seconds or so beyond that first like, oh my God, I need air, like hiccup thing. That's huge though. Like I've only been able to do it once because like you said, it's super psychological. So when I get the diaphragm flutters, I have a hard time getting past that. But the one time I did, just like you said, it gave me like a whole 20, 30 seconds underwater, which is huge. Like that's that's a huge amount to increase just, just psychologically. Yeah. There's also, I've noticed when I am like pushing past that a little bit and when I do finally surface and get like a good breath of air, like, and you can kind of, it's kind of hard to like understand it if you haven't like done a lot of breath hold work, but for the listeners, but when I surface after like an experience like that and finally get a good breath of air, my whole body can feel the oxygen going back into it. And it's like very satisfying. I'm like, okay, I just feel like I did a really good job, but I feel proud of that. That's super so, cool. Yeah. I think you've had that feeling when you surface before. No, not yet, but I haven't gone as deep as like figuratively and literally as you, you know? And I also wanted to preface to the listeners that going past your diaphragm fluttering is good to do, but that's one of your last body physical responses to not having any incoming air, which means like, don't do that on your first try. You have to know your body really well because you're not going to have any or many more physical sensations to tell you you need air. So you need to be on top of that and actually get air without your body telling you again. Yeah, that's, it's really good to air that out. This is like, don't try this at home unless you've gone through the free diver training, not just the PADI certification, but Sierra and I and a lot of other full-time models that do a lot of underwater work have had free diver certifications where they teach you 
all of this stuff. And so, yeah, that's extremely important. It is very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. It is, but it's like, it's the challenge because, okay, yeah, a little bit because of the danger, but there's just so much more to think about underwater. I mean, it, it gives you a whole new element of posing in a 3D realm of just floating. I haven't quite hacked all the different poses I can do without having to worry about gravity. But that's why I'm so interested in it is that gravity is or buoyancy is so much more different than gravity that it creates a whole different element for posing. Yeah, I like that too. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we're both very passionate about underwater. I, I can I can tell we could talk about this for hours. I have a question that I ask everybody on the podcast. Mm -hmm. It's called the photo shoot fail of the week. Can you describe a situation that you had as a crazy photo shoot story, either because something that happened at the photo shoot itself was crazy or the photographer themselves did something crazy? Like what's your of note crazy photo shoot story? So I had to write one down before this because I think you can relate that there's a bunch of weird things that happen throughout our career. But one that has a shock factor is I've been held at gunpoint before and it was in Canada. Yeah. So I'm also a big fan of shooting in abandoned buildings, but that is technically trespassing in a lot of cases. And it can come with a lot of danger, like not only on the trespassing or legal standpoint, but also there could be people that are living there that might feel safe and having another human there makes it suddenly unsafe and things like that. What happened in this case is I was working with a photographer whom I've worked with a bunch before and is in the Bando community. So this was just chance. Like he had scouted the building before. He had done everything he needed to to make it safe for me. And something like this still happened. And I don't blame him at all. He did all of the pre-checks. So it was an abandoned mansion and we knew we can get in through the back, which puts us in the basement where an indoor pool was, but of course it was empty. And so we started doing shoots and of course naked. And then we go into the next room with the pool. And I should say that I was with another model too. So the dynamic is two females and one male. And then all of a sudden we heard this like bang, which we thought like, okay, someone's in the building. We thought it was a door slamming. So that has never really happened to me, especially because we heard running footsteps too. So we're like, okay, like this, this doesn't seem safe. So we all kind of hid in the room we were at. There wasn't much light. So we were hiding in the shadows. I'm still butt naked. So I had to like 007 into the other room to get my clothes. So I'm like, man, if I'm going to die. It's not going to be naked. So I get my clothes on and I hide in the shadows. We've heard that he's checked the top floor. He's checked the middle floor. Now he's come into the basement. And from our hiding spots, we were a little bit separated. We can see the beam of the flashlight coming through. Like this guy is not just checking a sound. He knows that people are in here and he's going to find them. So we, the three of us, recognize that this was the case. And, you know, came out with our bags on the ground, hands up, like, hey, hey. And of course, we got barked at, we got yelled at. This guy was screaming at us to give us, give him our wallets. So we thought we were getting mugged. And, you know, he had a gun pointed at us, too. So, of course, we did all of that and got everything to him. He's taking photos of our ID. He's, like, threatening that he's going to, like, kill us and throw us in the river in the back and Oh my God. Yeah, it was like very intense. 
he said he was going to put bear traps on the property to catch all our friends. And, and then basically what ended up happening is he had his like 10 minutes of shouting, but I think he recognized that, okay, there was a six foot one woman. Sure. And then a five foot four woman and a five foot five man. And we were all under the age of 30. So he kind of stepped back a bit that we weren't a threat. And I still believe to this day, that's the biggest reason we were okay is because of the female to male ratio, height and age. We just were not a threatening group. And then, so he basically stepped down and was like, Hey, like you guys seem scared enough. Like you just need to tell all of your friends in the urbex community that this is not an abandoned building. I had just bought this building two weeks ago. I'm renovating it. Some of you kids have come in and broken all the windows. And I can see that's not you guys. You guys have a camera. You guys are just caught in the wrong moment, but you need to tell everyone not to come here. And now I have your IDs. So like, you know, if other people come in, we're going to be in contact as well. Like there was all of these threats, but he did really step down. He walked us out the front of the mansion. And this photographer, whom I love dearly, he's wonderful, was like, okay, so now things are cool. Can we take some more photos? And the guy said, yes. <laughs> so then we turned around and took more photos after being held by gunpoint. <laughs> and none of the photos turned out well because I'm scared as shit at this point. The photographer is shaking. So all of the photos are like, like out of focus. And then the next day, the pandemic started and we were all put into isolation. And all of a sudden, oh. staying at home felt really nice. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That's got to be one of the craziest stories I've ever heard for, uh, for Photoshop. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the guy, he just bought the place and he was renovating it? Yeah. You know because I doubt he's listening to this podcast. Plus I've given no info. So I think he bought the place and is renovating, but I also think he was hiding something in there. I don't know what, but I also think it's weird that he went to the top floor before he searched the ground floor or the basement. But if you are searching a house and there was potential danger, you leave all the doors open and you search the floor that you're on and then you expand to other floors. I thought it was really weird that he went straight to the top floor. And I will never know what's up there because I didn't get that far. <laughs> Interesting. Now I'm curious what could have been on the top floor. Right? Something worth having a gun in Canada, which is saying something. Oh, right. That was in Canada. Mm -hmm. Whoa. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, I, I need a moment to decompress from all that. <laughs> and like I said, it's, you know, a lot of people really hated the stay at home thing. But when they said that, I'm like, nope, I'm good. I will stay at home. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it sounds traumatizing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the other thing, too, is I was mostly okay, because I recognized that the gun was pointed at the photographer the whole time. He, as the man, <laughs> was the threat in the situation, which is really unfortunate that things play as stereotypes in that way. But this happened while well, it was the beginning of COVID, like three years ago now. We're all still friends. We're all past it. And now it's kind of a story we laugh about because sometimes we just forget it exists. It was just so crazy that it actually happened, you know? Yeah, I'm thinking it's interesting that the threats that he was making was more like he's going to dump your bodies in the river and don't tell, tell all your friends to not come here instead of saying something like, I'm going to call the police. Yeah, well... <laughs> And that was like a weird argument we had while under gunpoint. I don't know why we were arguing. 
but I think he threatened to call the police on us. And we were like, wait a second, <laughs> you're about to shoot us. I don't think that gun's legal. <laughs> Wouldn't the police help us? And then we were arguing on whose side the police would take. I still don't know. I don't care. Like, I'm just was happy that he mellowed out. Oh, and the other funny thing is when we were taking photos at the second time, like once he had yelled at us, calmed down, and we were taking photos again, because the COVID stuff was just a whisper at that point. But he started coughing really heavily. And he was like, don't oh. worry, guys, it's not COVID. And I remember, I didn't say this out loud. I'm like, you literally almost just shot us off. And you're apologizing that you might have given us COVID? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing was just such a trip. Yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> so let this be a warning, too, for our listeners about abandoned buildings. They're super cool. They're super fun. I've maybe done a hundred of them in my life. And that was my only bad situation. But that could be anyone's first situation, too. So just remember that there's a danger in shooting in abandoned buildings as well. Yeah. And also, this is something that I had. I posted like an open-ended question on my Instagram story saying, if anybody has any questions to submit to the podcast, like, let me know. One of the questions that somebody submitted was like, how do you go about doing abandoned location photo shoots? Like for anybody that's out there that might be an aspiring photographer, like what tips would you give them for abandoned places shoots? Okay. So I was really lucky with my abandoned buildings. Except for that one. Yeah. <laughs> true, true. But it was because I had an ex-boyfriend who was really big in the graffiti scene. So he, in all his spare time, was scouting and pre-scouting these. So I had all of these locations under my belt that were pre-scouted and safetyed out by my ex. So, but for myself, now that I'm going through them, I'm looking to see what kind of debris is on the ground, you know, if there's needles, if there's glass, and you can check that even outside the building. I would check outside the building and just like wander around a little bit to see what people come out because, you know, if it is a place that has security, they're not going to care too much if you're wandering around on the ground. So they're going to give you a slap on the wrist and tell you not to do that. Maybe they'll have a power trip, but it's not serious. If they catch you in the building, that's when fines and stuff usually come out. So if I was pre-scouting, I kind of wander around, I check out, I see what I can see in windows. If nothing's happening and I've been wandering around for like 10, 15 minutes, then I might start checking doors and windows. But of course, same thing, you're always are checking because if you climb through a window and just drop, what are you dropping into? Like these are really important questions. <laughs> but there are also like a lot of urbex groups that do all of these pre-scouting for you. So like it's it's one thing to find an abandoned building on the side of the road and start doing all the safety checks. That's a lot more serious than going onto a Facebook group or an urbex group and seeing something that's already been pre-scouted. There's usually photos. Like that's a much safer route. And people are pretty giving in that situation because they want they they're giving to other photographers not graffiti artists. Graffiti artists had to be really sneaky about everything because, I mean, they, in a lot of people's views, would vandalize the building. So graffiti artists were often kept out of the loop and having to figure things out on their own. Yeah, makes sense. What about trespassing signs? Do you go past those or do you uh, take them with a grain of salt? What is your personal policy on no trespassing signs? Uh... <laughs> so t as far as the technicality, 
at least in Ontario, it's really hard to keep track with laws elsewhere. But every entrance has to have a no trespassing law. Otherwise, you can kind of legally play dumb and, and it'd be perfectly acceptable and be like, hmm, there wasn't one on this entrance. So I saw none of them. And that's why I went in. So it's really easy for me to play that in my home area because there's that legal loophole. Outside of that, because I'm not doing so much location scouting, other people are, I'm kind of just trusting other people's gut. And so far, other than that one situation I've explained, there hasn't been any issues, but I, I don't super pay attention to no trespassing signs. <laughs> yeah, I do also take them with a grain of salt too, because I'm not sure, like, it depends on the location, obviously. Sometimes I'll read about the area on Google or I'll ask other people that have been there. Like, is there somebody working on site? Are there staff security cameras and stuff like that? And if there's not, and there's no trespassing sign, and there's like nobody around, it's like, well, if I'm not breaking stuff or being loud, like nobody's gonna know. Yeah. Exactly. And like you said, the no breaking thing is, as far as legally, as far as respect, abandoned buildings are cool. Like don't go in and smash a bunch of things and leave a mess. Other people will want to shoot in it. Other people might want to restore it. Like there's just, no reason to, to be a dick in there. <laughs> I will say another tip that I want to add is have a first aid kit on hand. So I was at a workshop in an abandoned building once and I stepped on broken glass and was ble bleeding quite a bit. And the workshop organizer did not have a first aid kit. Oh no. Oof. Especially for running yeah. an event in one. Oh my goodness. I know, but fortunately, one of the other photographers attending had one, and his was from like the 70s, and he had like a little glass tube of iodine. No kidding. And that seemed to work. He's like, oh, I finally get to use this. And I was like, what's iodine? <laughs> one habit I've taken upon, especially since we're posing naked and bare feet in these abandoned places, is I find like a piece of wooden board already in the abandoned building, so it doesn't look misplaced, but I just pick it up. I clean it up and I carry it around with me and it's just like my safety board. I'm standing on that board through the entire set. No one else notices because the location changes and there's just rebel everywhere. But I just always find like a board that suits the environment and stand on that. It helps me. I can place it on glass and be okay. Like it just makes things easier. Oh my gosh, that is such a good idea. I'm going to use that Absolutely. in the future. <laughs> I have another question that I ask everybody on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Can you describe something in your life, whether or not it's related to your modeling, where you were faced with some kind of a challenge, whether it was like a change in your life or an insecurity that you had to overcome? What would be the rising phoenix moment in your life? Well, man, I've had so many, which I think is really a cool thing about my life is that I'm constantly challenged and growing, but I did prepare an answer for one that's modeling related. So it had to do again with rebranding. So I started photography when I was 16 and then I already knew about the nude world. I grew up in a family, like I, I didn't understand the problem with nudity. So I was very eager to get into nude modeling. So right when I was 18, I started nude modeling, but I didn't understand why I was having more trouble than a lot of my peers trying to get into the artistic world. Because of my body type being a little bit on the curvy side and being bigger chested, I was typecast into the Playboy genre of nude modeling, which is fine. I still do some of that today. Every It's totally cool. 
it was just a hundred percent of the gigs. And you know, I'm 18, so I didn't really know how to set boundaries. So photographers kept asking me to do the panties between my ankles and do like the oops kind of thing, which, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's not like the hard part to learn with that was it's not crossing any boundaries as far as safety boundaries, because at that point I only understood boundaries as safety boundaries. I just thought it was tacky. I just didn't want to be photographed that way. I thought it was, it was silly. I didn't like it. But I didn't know how to say that. I didn't know that that was a good enough reason to say no to something, you know? And like I said, I still like do shoots like that every once in a while, but I just, I hated that it was 100% of my shoots. And I didn't know how to get out of this, this branding is the more shoots I did, the more I got requested. So good. I was getting more business, but it was in a direction that wasn't super fulfilling or fun for me. So I tried for like a year or two and it just, just kept getting more and more into that niche and I couldn't get out. So I completely stopped nude modeling actually to try and figure out how to do that, which was a shame because I loved being nude, but all of a sudden it just had a stronger sexual connotation than I understood it before. And I didn't like, I still wanted to have a separation between sexuality and nudity. I know they can coexist, but I didn't know how to balance that line professionally in a way I wanted to be represented. So I quit nudes for like, two or three years and just ended up building my portfolio really strong. I still did a lot of uh, boudoir and lingerie, which arguably is sexier than nudes, but I just somehow felt better doing that. And then when I graduated college, it was kind of, uh, okay, do I go on for my master's or do I see where this modeling thing could go? And my first summer after I tried nudes again and it just, completely because I had a stronger portfolio because I wasn't an 18 year old girl who's like that age group is highly sexualized unfortunately too now that I was a bit older and I was I knew what was going on I had a completely different clientele of photographers that were approaching me that were more collaborative on what kind of photos I wanted how I wanted to be represented I had a more diversity of requests it wasn't getting asked the same thing and it really made me feel better with modeling and really made me want to pursue it more, to give it more trust, to give it more, more of myself in because it just felt more in tune with my identity and how I saw myself. So yeah, that's my Phoenix Rising moment. It's, it took a few years, but I finally figured it out. Oh, that's really interesting. I've had a similar kind of issue as well. And I what I learned from it is that you get more of what you put out. Yeah. So you want to do more like fancy dress photo shoots. You have to start setting them up on your own. You have to like create that vibe. And then people who like that vibe will come ask you to create that with you. And it took me a long time to figure that out too. Yeah, because we're so in tune to like posting content and showing that we're active and stuff like that. Like now the general rule is I try not to post things that I wouldn't want a photographer to be like, do that again, but for me, because there yeah. are photographers who do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I still do a lot of glamour photography, but you'll notice I, I never really post it because it's just like, like, I don't have anything wrong with it. It just doesn't feed my soul. So I do glamour photography, not secretly, but I just, I don't 
super encourage it in my life either. Yeah, you'll get hired for it and you'll do it, but it's not like you. Yeah, yeah. It's for me personally, I call it the photocopying part of the job. I'm just like, I never figured out a way for glamour posing to be fun for me. It's to me, it feels almost catalogy where you just have like nine rotating poses. But that's also probably because I didn't hack glamour photography. I love art photography because you can just tie yourself in knots. You can do like the weirdest things and someone will call it art and reinforce it. <laughs> and it's a lot more fun that way. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I could do it all, but you're right. There are like go-to poses that glamour photographers all like. So if you're getting hired by somebody for a glamour shoot, you already know what poses to do that they're going to either ask you to do or when you do them, they're going to really like them. So you just do those nine poses over and over in the different various striptease sessions. Exactly. Exactly. Which is just, it's not like for me, creative or inspiring, but it is part of the job and I still don't mind doing it. It's just not my favorite contract. That's all. Yeah. And I guess you could get good postable images of yourself at Glamour Shoes yeah. that are make you marketable because... They're always like, you know, highlighting your features. You can usually see your face really well. Everything's in focus. So it's it's more, I, I feel when there's a model who has their portfolio is like more like completely art photos, a lot of photographers want to know what your face looks like, what your face looks like now, yeah. what your body looks like when you're standing up, like just without posing. And, and so... It is. I feel like there is a benefit to having some glamour photos, but not everything. Oh, yeah, and totally. And we all know, too, that glamour photography hits the algorithm and hits social media way better than almost anything else. Like, it's just what the masses want to see. So, like, like, on a business level, it's super smart to do those, too. And there's, like, a never-ending supply of glamour shoots as a travel model, too. So it's still like very good. It just doesn't feed my soul. Yeah. But I was thinking about this the other day. It's like when somebody posts like everything that they have is like Photoshop. So they always look perfect. Now that AI is getting so good, that model that posts 100% all like Photoshopped pretty glamour photos, they they could be an AI. Like they might not even be a real person. Like you don't know. <laughs> That's it. Oh man. AI is changing the industry so much already. It's going to be really interesting. I was listening the possibility of people selling their image to AI, like going in and getting 3D photographed and whatever, and selling the rights to your image to, for people to use in movies or in photo shoots and things like that, which I personally totally see the AI industry moving towards. It'll be interesting as far as privacy and consent laws go or, or rules how far that'll go if it does go that way. But I do think so. And I'm just going to sit back and watch. <laughs> Have you heard of deep fakes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've only heard and read about them in blogs. I haven't actually gone down the internet hole to, to watch them and see if I can catch them either. I learned about deep fakes the hard way. <laughs> Several years ago, I think 2018 or something, the technology might have been newer. Maybe it was 2019. I'm not sure. Yeah. Somebody took two different videos of a woman named Dillian Harper, who's a porn star, 
One of them, she was like masturbating with toys and the other one, she's having sex with a guy. And somebody used deep fake technology to stitch my face onto her body in those two videos. No kidding. And a lot of people thought that it was me in the video. So it was real enough that it passed, huh? You know, I mean, I think that if you don't know what deep fake is, maybe if you're like, if you don't have good vision, but there's any time that her hair went over her face in the video, or I guess my face, <laughs> then it would glitch out because the hair going over the face would affect the technology of stitching my face to her face. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, so I look. Also, it said MrDeepFakes.com in the corner of the video because that's the website that people were using to make them. So to me, it was obviously like a crafted video. So at first I was like, oh my God, what the fuck? Like, this isn't me. And then later on, I was like, oh, who cares anyway? I mean, if they have this technology, that means that they could put like Angelina Jolie with somebody else's face on it or Angelina Jolie on a porn star and be like, oh, this is Angelina's porn. And like, what's Angelina Jolie going to do about it? You know, like, yeah if it's not real like does it matter like i don't know <laughs> interesting yeah that's a whole ethical argument on its own too but with that being said i know deepfake has been around for a number of years now and it hasn't like been used as propaganda and because that was the big fear i remember was it being used as political firing and making people say what they didn't say and stuff and either i'm completely brainwashed and haven't noticed it but I'm pretty sure deepfake is not being used in the way that we all were afraid it was going to be used at the beginning. I think that it has been, but when they make deepfake videos that are fake politician speeches and stuff, those videos end up on channels like BitChute and those like underground political like black market type video streaming, not mainstream like YouTube, because YouTube is pretty good at sussing out misinformation type stuff. Like if there's a web channel that is posting like conspiracy theory stuff, like there is conspiracy theory stuff on, on YouTube, but YouTube does have a policy where if they're spreading harmful misinformation, it'll get taken down. There was a documentary that was taken off of YouTube. It was called Plandemic. Plandemic. I'm writing that down. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to get really stoned later <laughs> and watch it. Yeah. So it, it has like all this uh, falsified information from people that were making speeches who weren't necessarily like actually credential, like verified people. And it made it sound like the entire pandemic was a hoax and stuff like that. Right. I think I've heard some stuff about that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so yeah, stuff like Plandemic and then other fake politician videos where they have a person making a speech and then they like stitch like the president's face or whatever onto that. And they can also copy their voice too. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. But that kind of stuff, it, it has, it's not as mainstream, but it also makes me wonder like, what about the news? Because the news has like Fox and CNN, they've been known to post stuff that wasn't completely factual. So I'm wondering like, how much of what they share on the news is like, I don't know, AI or just fabricated or emboldened. I don't know, you know? It's, yeah. Well, and I guess we'll never really know, which is really unfortunate, which is just adding to the mistrust of what's reliable and valuable information these days, which it'll be interesting to see what AI does. Like I, I'm pretty sure, and I'm a little naive in this situation, 
but I know there's a big writer strike right now. And I think at least part of it is against AI writing. And I'm not too sure. I'm filling in blanks here. But I know there's something going on and there's some kind of connection there already from AI stuff. Yes, it's all true. It's all true. <laughs> I'm not sure about like the future of the world, but it, it could be dystopian. I'm just trying to hang on to the skills that I already have like in the in the real world as far as like interacting with humans in real life and not completely falling into the digital side of things because it is a slippery slope. It really is. Those algorithms really know how to drag you in and keep you there. It's almost like they were specifically built for that purpose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they <Yep>. do. <laughs> I have a lot of trouble with that stuff, too. Um, when the pandemic broke out and all of a sudden a lot of our jobs became obsolete or at least harder, the joke was in my family that, you know, my brother worked at a gun range and it's just like super handy. My dad's a carpenter and can build almost anything. My younger brother is like a computer nerd and can be like a hacker or whatever. My mom's a gardener. She started all these gardening gardens for the city and can be self-sufficient and I can run around naked. So if things got really bad, I had a good support system and not much to offer at that point. But I'm working a lot to change that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're getting close to the end of the podcast. I wanted to ask you if there's anything else that you wanted to talk about before we go. No, nothing specific. I'm really happy to have been invited on here. I've been listening to your other episodes. I think you're doing a phenomenal job. And it's really cool to hear a lot of other perspectives going on. And I think in the process of you doing this, you're building not only a stronger conversation, but a better knit community and making these questions and these people more approachable when they're kind of scary without someone starting the conversation like this. So thank you so much for starting this podcast. And thank you for inviting me on it. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. It is kind of awkward, like thinking about things like setting boundaries and saying no to certain things. And these are things that you know, I struggled with also when I first got into modeling, mm -hmm. but I think it also translates into people who aren't models or photographers, like with their regular lives and relationships too. Absolutely. Yeah. I always forget what kind of bubble we live in, that we have such a different world, but there's so much spillover in it with communication, consent, nudity, art, and all of that stuff that I think everyone's interested in. They just don't know how to get into it. Yeah. And I, I also feel that sense that we are kind of in a bubble. And even looking at my statistics and seeing who's listening to the podcast and the people that are giving me feedback about it, they're all photographers and models. And I'm like, I think that this podcast is interesting enough for people outside of the interest industry to be curious about. But then I also oh, second guess myself. I'm like, is it? Are we just kind of speaking Greek to people outside, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. I just think we're we're at like you're at the beginning of podcast stages where it's hitting the niche group that it's made for. And then once it gets more traction and other people start getting like, I do think this is interesting. I mean, OnlyFans wouldn't exist if it wasn't for people wanting to know the inner side of the entertainment industry in some way. Yeah. So, I, so yeah, no, I think this has a lot of potential to reach those kind of ears. It's just a question of when. That's true. And oh, I do have to backpedal a little bit because 
there was one person that messaged me saying they listen to the podcast and they are not a photographer, but that because they listen to my podcast, they learned about what model photography workshops were and they joined one and they, they did like a photo workshop at some local glamour studio thing. And they liked it. They're like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to eventually like work with you one day if you ever come to my town. And I was like, that is so cool. And like, sometimes when regular people and I are having a conversation, you know, they're like, oh man, I just need some hobbies. I need to get out more. I'm like, join your local photography meetup, <laughs> you know? That's really, really cool. Look at, that's like a very, very direct effect. Imagine all of the things that are happening that they're not telling you like directly, you know? Yeah, I think that photography, like being behind a camera and taking pictures of something, to, even if it's just like pictures of a parade that you're at or pictures of people partying or whatever, it, it is like somewhat of an escape where you have a function to be there instead of needing to have a conversation with people to look cool. You can be taking pictures at an event. I don't know if you suffer with like any social anxiety. You seem pretty extroverted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other conversation on its own. And <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about that on another time or another podcast. Otherwise, this thing's going to be like three hours long. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. The reason I brought that up is because there are people who have sort of come out of their shell through photography. And I mean, I've, I've had that as well, where if I'm at some event, having a reason to be there besides just trying to talk to people just through taking pictures is it helps me get through it. I absolutely agree. And then how fun <laughs> is it to have the memories? There was a quote that I really liked that it was like, I really like photographs because they never change even when the people do. Yeah. Heck yeah. I like that. Well, I will share your link to your Instagram. And if you've got like a website for your portfolio or like your Model Mayhem link, I'll put that in the show notes also. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for having me and for promoting me. That's wonderful. Yeah. Heck yeah. It was great having you on the show. And maybe we'll have you on another episode down the road in the future. Absolutely. Let's dig into extroversion and social anxiety with photography. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Sierra, it was great chatting with you. Thank you again. Bye. Bye.